Look out, America's most popular apps will reshape media. And was media's crisis of proliferation predicted back in 1976? Say it ain't so. This is episode 28 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom Asaka and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asaka. Look out, Tom. America's most popular apps will reshape media. You know it's true. I know it's true. I'm ducking. <laughs> Tom, this is from a, a piece that uh, from, um, uh, what is it, uh, uh, Quartz.com. These are the 25 most popular mobile apps in America. Uh, this is a list, real super simple, of 25 the 25 top mobile apps based on U.S. uniques from Comscore. And I found this really to be interesting for a couple of reasons. And I'm not going to go through all the list, obviously, because that would be boring on a podcast. But uh, what's interesting to me is what's on it, what's not on it, and how some of the items on it have changed over time. At the very, very top are Facebook and YouTube. No real surprise there. Although Facebook Messenger is a very close third. It's about to overtake YouTube. And if you look back to 2014, you'll see that Facebook Messenger is way, way up. Obviously, that's a relatively new product from Facebook. But um, you have to believe that there's some pretty big consequences when you see at the very top of the usage uh, totem pole Facebook and YouTube in a world dominated by media which are not Facebook and YouTube, right? Huge, huge. Uh, it, listen, media is definitely being reshaped because what's media? It's channels of communication. Mm-hmm. And more and more, at least for me, and I think for you and most people I know, that means little screens that we control, tablets, smartphones, watches. And it's also why Facebook which, I mean, if you really think about, who was Facebook? Oh, it was a closed social networking site for students at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Right? Now they're making bold moves into everything that will draw our attention to those screens. Messaging, you mentioned. Video mm-hmm. calls, peer-to-peer payments, news, video entertainment, virtual reality. If you're looking at a screen, Facebook wants you to be looking at that screen, whatever and wherever it is, through them. I mean, they're even working on a search engine. Yeah, well, pretty clearly, Facebook essentially, whether it wants to or not, it's essentially a proxy for the Internet on mobile platforms, right? That's certainly the way it's playing out. Yeah, what out. are the and, numbers, Mark? What did they say the well, uniques were? Well, 126 million uniques, number one by far. Next closest YouTube was 99 million. Huge. And needless to say, I think when you have a platform that big, it gives you, and this is something I'm going to be talking about in one of my raves, it gives you the opportunity to do pretty much anything you want. Because once you have distribution and once you have audience, um, the world is your oyster. (laughs) (laughs) It's also interesting, I think, to note what is not on this list. And again, first of all, in terms of what's on this list, I kind of went through the list and categorized the different uh, apps in terms of what their purpose was. Purposes like connecting with each other, watching stuff, listening to stuff, exploring stuff, shopping for things, and solving problems, day-to-day problems, stocks, directions, weather. What's interesting to me, I think, is what's not on this list. There are no games on this list, the top 25, and I'm assuming that's because there's just so many games that the attention for games is just spread out. It's too diffuse, and there's no one uh, top-of-the-pile game. Yeah, I mean, if they they had categorized games— 
then that who knows that would have been somewhere up near the top all games oh i'll bet i'll bet that's true in fact it might have been the top right um no games um no podcast app i found fascinating i don't know if you noticed that but in the top 25 for all the discussion about podcast ah that's true there's no podcast app and here's something else that was interesting there's no news app there's no news app up there. The closest thing, I guess, would be Facebook. Right. <laughs> Which I think goes back to one of the opportunities. Again, you know, we've talked before about how brands are funneling their content, channeling their content into Facebook in a native fashion. Well, now you can certainly understand why, because they can't get there any other way. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's kind of like we used to have things called newspapers and TV, and, and we called that mass media. Mm-hmm. Now, these folks aren't even in the top 25. Facebook is mass media, and all these media are niche media <laughs> who, who want right. to kind of be carried by Facebook. Really yes, interesting. It is interesting, and I think it is. When you look at the top of the list and you see Facebook and you see YouTube, you say, well, you know, Facebook and YouTube taken together or separately, for that matter, can pretty much emulate any other form of media there is that matters to people, any kind of television, any kind of, you know, uh, uh, entertainment, right. it can all be wrapped up in those worlds. Even audio can be wrapped up in those well, worlds. That's, right, that's another right. thing. Yeah. There's not a lot of audio on here. I mean, Spotify is up in, now in the top 25. It didn't exist there before. Uh, Pandora is actually in the top 10. But once you get outside of Pandora and Spotify, uh, Google Play is there. Uh, but there's not a lot more in the audio space either. So it's really interesting how it's a very small number of very dominant players. Yeah, but I also think that we forget that a lot of music listening and discovery is through YouTube. People just don't bring it up. Absolutely true. That's And I've done the research and I've seen that myself. It's absolutely true. Yep. So that is the future of media. Maybe. Facebook and YouTube. Get used to it. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, what's going to allow these apps to reshape media are these complex, kind of entangled exchanges of value between them, the consumer, but then the content producers and the brand advertisers. I don't know how this is all going to play out, especially with technologies like ad blocking on their way. So That's right. We don't and, know. Yeah. And, you know, I think too, Tom, um, when you mentioned the term content producers or publishers, whatever phrase we want to use, I'm really wondering as time goes by what the difference is going to be from a perceived standpoint. You know, how consumers are going to view the difference between Facebook and publishers that channel content through Facebook. What in the world is the difference? If I'm looking at Facebook to get Washington Post content or, you know, Huffington Post content, um, is that Huffington Post content or is that Facebook content? To the consumer, isn't it Facebook content? Oh the, con- oh, the consumer doesn't care, right? I don't yeah, think but- they're thinking about it. The, the question is, how is this monetized? <laughs> I, I mean, who's, who's going to make the cut of the advertising? Is there going to be advertising? What's, <laughs> this is going to be a real interesting, interesting, interesting time. You're right. The consumer is interested in nothing but ease of use, getting the information they want in the most entertaining way that they can. And if it's going to be through the Facebook app, then that's where they're going to get it. Also, I think the fact that Facebook has been so careful about the user experience, so very careful about the user experience, is really going to pay off for them in the end. Because as you know, 
Um, a lot of the publishers out there with their websites strewn with display ads that I haven't blocked yet are not so concerned about the user experience. In fact, there was a, a piece last week, uh, Marissa Meyer talking about how ad blockers were going to mean that native ads were all the more important and the content or the ads surrounding the content has to be as much like the content as possible because then it adds value rather than interruption. And I saw somewhere, I think in Inc.com or something, somebody wrote a note, Marissa Meyer's wrong about this. And that's not true. And this there's not going to be content uh, native advertising. There's still going to be space for... Um, for interruptive ads, they just have to be better interruptive <laughs> ads. They have to be quality interruptive ads, not, not the crap that's out there now. And the funny thing is, you've been to Inc.com. You know what I'm going to say. Oh, I know. There was so much crap on the page. Quality interruptive. <laughs> I like that. That, that, is, that's that was an my term. That's an oxymoron. <laughs> That was, I made that one up. So give me some credit for that one. But all there was right, so much right. crap on the page. Ma- this is making my list with military military intelligence, uh, happily married. I've got like two or three going on here. You know, Quality. I have to tell you, I spent, a, I spent a year in ROTC in college, and I remember the, uh, the Marine, um, uh, whatever he was, Marine Major, whatever, uh, at one point was trying to recruit one of my friends to, to stay in the program longer. And he said, you know... You know, we've got a new uh, a new category now in the Marines. It's called intelligence. <laughs> they added it, huh? What year was that? <laughs> I don't. I don't want to say. I mean, maybe it, it was. Se- maybe it was seventy six. The same time this guy <laughs> predicted the media crisis of proliferation. That reminds me. You're listening <laughs> to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Was media's crisis of proliferation predicted back in 1976? The article is from the BBC. It's called The Pop Star and the Prophet. And here's the story. It's kind of, it's kind of spooky, actually. <laughs> yeah. In 1976, a French polymath called Jacques Attali wrote a book that predicted the crisis of music proliferation, just too much music for words, too much music to monetize, with astonishing accuracy. It was called Noise, the Political Economy of Music, and he called the coming turmoil the Crisis of Proliferation. Soon, he said, we would all have so much recorded music, it would cease to have any value. And Tom, that's kind of how it's worked out, isn't yeah. it? You know, it is amazing because I think about it and I say, okay, wait a minute, 1976, his insight could not have been driven by technology because I distinctly remember I was taking a programming course in college then, and it was a, a room-sized computer where we were using punch cards to try to make it add and subtract. So he couldn't have seen this proliferation based on technology. He saw something <laughs> else, right? He said it had to do with um, the, the control of, by the power brokers of music. Yes. Right? He did, and he used some amazing historical anecdotes that are just so, so academic. I, I am compelled to repeat at least one of them. Here's <laughs> one. Powerful people had often used music to try and control people. In the ninth century, for example, the emperor Charlemagne <laughs> had imposed by force the practice of Gregorian chant, quote, to forge the cultural and political unity of his kingdom. Much later, the arrival of capitalism in the pop charts gave moguls the chance to use music to extract large amounts of money from people, which is a different kind of wielding of power. But yeah, I mean, who would have expected Charlemagne to be used as a point about music, you know, 30 years um, into the future? Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. And, and, And 
I mean, it, it didn't. The article didn't get into. Well, it did. It talked a little bit more about technology, but it, as far as the internet, I, I, he didn't get really deep into what the internet did and how that poured gasoline on this whole idea of seizing control from the from the people in power. But mm-hmm. that's exactly. Yeah, I mean, what does power do for a business in in a free market economy? It just it creates entry barriers. Some yeah. some kind of obstacle that prevents competitors from entering the market. So it's destroyed most of them. Mass media advertising used to be a barrier. Okay, I'll go niche and I'll use email and right. content marketing, social media. Access to capital used to be a big barrier. Oh, okay, I'll crowdsource the funds. Right? Mm-hmm. Physical distribution used to be a barrier. Okay, I'll go with e-commerce. So mm-hmm. all of these barriers that the powerful people had erected are breaking down. And mm-hmm. thus the crisis of proliferation. Right, because if anybody can make anything, they will. Right. And it, beca- and it constantly amazes me how this particular article is written by a musician. It constantly amazes me how musicians think that because they love to play music, they somehow think they should be able to make a living out of that. I don't know <laughs> if I like to knit... Well, they're not thinking about anybody else, though. They're thinking about us. <laughs> really, that's characteristic of musicians, it turns well, out. Well, they're comparing themselves, you know, to their, to their heroes, you know? And, and they, don't, they don't look at, let's say, a writer like me of, of nonfiction books. Frankly, Mark, I'm surprised that nonfiction books are even a viable category, given the amount of free content that there is online for everything. <laughs> You might not well, want to read a novel online, but you could certainly go grab some, you know, nonfiction content about whatever subject matter you're interested in. Isn't it interesting too that the definition of what constitutes a book in this day and age has also uh, changed? Because if you go to the uh, the Amazon uh, Kindle store and you find a book for two dollars and ninety nine cents, and it looks like a book because it's got a cover. Yeah. And it's there in the Kindle store and it's got 75 pages or 49 pages, but it's 2.99. Tom, that's a book. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> love might, it. You might have called it. that an essay in days gone by. I, that would never get near a bookstore, but nope, that's a book. I know, it's in the de- Kindle store. And the designer makes the cover look thi- like it's a real thick book too. Yes. Like a hardcover book. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty funny. But we're, just, we're, we're drowning in all this stuff. I like how he said that you can use music and he could predict future trends in the marketplace. Like he was talking about uh, manufacturing is going to get hit, he says, by an identical crisis to the music right. industry caused by 3D printing. Well, then that's your point. I mean, it, it democratizes the ability to make widgets. So if anybody can make a widget, everybybody's going to make a widget. Then there'll be a wash in widgets. Although, you know, oh, I'm, man. He I'd be interested to see witches. just how good these... Well, Mark, he did. Guy, I mean, this guy said you're going you're gonna to print your own furniture. <laughs> That's one big machine. And number two, I hope to God it's Ikea's <laughs> furniture because the, the relationships are being destroyed daily with people trying to put this stuff together. So if you could just print Tell me it. About it. <laughs> Tell me about it. We just moved into a new house. We we're moving a bookshelf around. And my wife said, what's hanging off the back of that bookshelf? And I said, listen, your husband made that bookshelf. Be nice to me. I did the best I could. Uh, yeah, you, his, should we should we let them in on on what what he said? The only way out is yes. Oh. Be my guest. The only thing that is rare is time. I love that, don't you? I do. <laughs> By which he meant that because time can't be copied, selling lived experiences like concerts should hold their value in a way that records 
can't, lived experiences. In other words, if you sell me something I can experience that consumes my time, that is an event. I mean, implicit in that statement is something that's an event, right? Right, Because everything we do consumes time. Right. But something that's an event, then that has uniqueness and that has scarcity. And that made me think about things like the Super Bowl. The NFL, right. Yeah, (laughs) any NFL game, um, awards events, you know, there's one Oscar, there's one Grammy, These, even though there's a million copycats, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it is really interesting that what he's really saying is the only thing that's scarce is how you spend your time. And if, you, if you're selling something that wraps up people's time in an occasion, an event, a happening, then that has durable value. Do it live because it's perishable and nobody can buy it again. That's right. It's time for rants and raves, Tom. Uh, that means I have to go first. <laughs> I thought, I, 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 thought I would give you a little I, dead air just yeah, to see what happened. That, I knew what that was. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you're going to like this one. I think I'm, I think I'm raving. Have, have you heard of the birthday paradox? No. Okay. So you like this. It's, it's a problem in probability theory. And what it does is it attempts to determine the odds of two people having the same birthday mm. given a certain size group. Okay. Now get this. There's a 50% probability of two people sharing the same birthday with groups of 23 people. Mm-hmm. There's a 99.9% wow. probability when you have 70 people. Mm-hmm. So if you have 70 people listening to this podcast, there are two people right now that are sharing a birthday today. Hmm. So that's good news. Now, Warner Chapel is the publishing arm of Warner Music. They used to collect royalties anytime anyone sang or played happy birthday to you mm-hmm. as part of a profit-making enterprise, like theater productions, movies, TV shows, podcasts like ours, although I don't mm-hmm. think we're making any profits. But, <laughs> but even people who Not wanted, as far as you know. <laughs> oh, see? <laughs> I knew I should have moved my office to San Diego. <laughs> even people who wanted to sing the song publicly as part of a business, let's say you own a restaurant and you want to give out free birthday cake to patrons, if you mm-hmm. sang that song, you had to pay to use the song. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was bringing Warner about $2 million a year in royalties. Mm. Well, not anymore. A federal judge has recently ruled that all of the Happy Birthday song copyright claims are invalid, which means that that song is now considered a public work and is free for everyone to use without fear of having to pay for it. So, Mark, I've decided that at the end of your rant, what we should do to celebrate is we should play happy birthday to you to the two listeners who are sharing a birthday while <laughs> listening to our podcast. <laughs> Only two? Well, uh, well, let's see, 70 people. We've got at least 70 people. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, stay tuned for that, folks. <laughs> I have a couple of things for you this week. I've got, uh, I always seem to have a couple, but get this, Tom, you're not going to believe it. I it's not Madame Tussauds. <laughs> You know what? It's funny you say that because I actually went, I said, you know what? Let me just see what's up at Madame Tussauds no, just in case right there's the something. She's doing something else. I'm going to lose it. No, no, there's, no there's, there's no, there was nothing worthy at Madame Tussauds this week. Although I want you to know I'm going to keep an eye on Madame Tussauds from now are. on. So <laughs> don't get me started till the end. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, two raves this week. The first one is a shout out to the Serial Podcast. 
you may have seen the news this week that uh, a couple of guys associated with the Lego movie, Hollywood guys, have uh, optioned the television rights for the serial podcast to go TV. This means not that they will be taking, you know, the season one story of Adnan Syed to television, but rather they will create basically new stories in the form of a serial. Um, uh, so though it'll be kind of a riff on serial. They license um, the brand. They license the brand. It's a new illustration of the brand on a new platform. Why is this happening? It's happening because serial is uniquely popular. Well, not uniquely popular, but it's very, very popular. It's got a lot of traction. It's got a lot of audience. And this is something that I talk about all the time, and I know you do too, which is if you are a brand successful enough that you can, you know, compelling, interesting, entertaining, informative enough that you can attract a large audience, you can do anything. Your options are unlimited right. across platforms. In fact, the only way to expand your brand past a certain point is to grow into other platforms. And the beauty of that is every time you land on another platform with another illustration of your brand, um, that recycles audience. It's a virtuous circle. It yep. recycles audience back to the original brand. So the fact that Serial will live if these guys are able to you know, get their pitch sold on television will uh, add more listeners to the Serial podcast in season two, which, by the way, is going to be focused on the Bo Bergdahl story, which oh. I'm already sold on. Right. I can't wait to hear that. Um, so it's going to be a virtual circle all the way around, and it's an illustration, again, of how important it is to grow an audience. And as I wrote on my blog this morning, you know, people think, and you as an author, you'll recognize this, that the way to get an audience is to write the book. No, <laughs> no publisher wants to, 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 for, to publish a book so that they can grow an audience, right? They want Not the no. audience first. Right. The audience always comes first. The challenge is growing an audience. Once you grow an audience, you can do anything with it. Once Star Wars has an audience, there can be a million Star Wars movies. Um, once Serial has an audience, they can be across uh, any number of platforms. So kudos to Serial. I think the way this is going to work out is more along the lines of what we know from HBO as True Detective. More of that kind of thing. Okay. But uh, a real credit for Serial, and congratulations to them. It's about time, and I think this also serves as another indicator of why you know, creative, compelling, entertaining, uh, quality content is so important, because without that, nobody cares. That's right. <laughs> That's rave number one. Here's rave number two. Tom, were you aware that HBO has a problem? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, HBO has a problem, Tom. Have you heard of the new uh, series coming to HBO called Westworld? Westworld? Westworld. No. Westworld, uh, you may recall, uh, is an old Michael Crichton book about, you know, it's kind of, quite frankly, Michael Crichton wrote the same book multiple times. Westworld. West what was that thing with Yul Brenner? What was that? That called? was Westworld, okay, yes. Yeah, so it's basically that. a bunch of robots in a Western kind of theme, and then they go out of control. Uh, or is it a bunch of dinosaurs in a dinosaur theme that go out? I'm not sure which. Uh, it, but somehow one gave him the idea for the other. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, um, so yeah, Westworld, old Western thing. At one point, it was going to be remade with Arnold Schwarzenegger and then Will Smith, and none of that happened. Westworld is coming to HBO with Anthony Hopkins next year. And I'll tell you, if you want to get some attention for Westworld, what are you going to do, right? What are you possibly going to do? Well, 
just recently, it turns out that they had a little problem, and that problem was with background actors because Central Casting discovered that background actors were going to be asked to do some things which may have been a little unusual, and they wanted to kind of release a notice about this, a notice that you'll find interesting. So here it is. Are you ready? Oh, boy. You are being given this disclosure and consent to work because you have knowingly and freely accepted an assignment as a background actor on the project Westworld. By the way, background actor, for anybody who doesn't know, they used to be called extras. They're the people who make somewhere between zero and almost zero to stand around all day and wait for someone to yell action. (laughs) You understand and accept the nature of the assignment as described below. This document serves to inform you that this project will require you to be fully nude and or witness others fully nude and participate in graphic sexual situations. What? By By accepting this project assignment, you may be required to do any of the following. Appear fully nude, wear a pubic hair patch, Perform genital-to-genital touching. (laughs) Have your genitals painted. (laughs) Simulate oral sex with hand-to-genital touching. And here's my favorite one. Contort to form a table-like shape while being fully nude. Well, there's groups that would probably pay for that. They wouldn't have to pay them anything. (laughs) Pose on all fours while others who are fully nude ride on your back. Ride on someone's back while you are both fully nude. Oh, you're making this up. Where'd you get this? No, I am not. And other assorted acts the project may require, which is my other favorite part. Other assorted acts, right? (laughs) Sorted or assorted? Uh, No, assorted. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, the point was, if you object to any of this, just be aware that you can say no at any time. And then, you know, you won't be paid the next to nothing. Well... (laughs) This was released into the public. HBO freaked out, and HBO issued a statement disavowing the notice and some of the details. Quote, the document that the background actors were given was created by an outside extras casting vendor. It was not requested, written, or approved by HBO, Warner Brothers Television, or the producers, and contains situations that we do not require of any actor. We are rectifying immediately the discrepancies in the vendor's document with our actual onset practices, which provide a professional and comfortable working environment for all performance. In other words, Tom... It's all a big misunderstanding. You know what I'm you know, thinking. You know what I'm thinking sitting here, don't you? <laughs> what are you thinking? Conspiracy. This is another PR <laughs> of course. stunt. Tom, it's all a big mis- misunderstanding because, you know, who wouldn't mistakenly insert the phrase contort to form a table-like <laughs> shape while being fully nude? You know, you can't make that up, right? Oh, How could that possibly be a mistake? So, yeah, so... Very, very sneaky. HBO knows how to get attention for its shows. you got to give them credit. Well, you know you're going to watch the first one just to see if anybody's riding on someone's Is back. There, <laughs> yeah, by the way, it, it serves to ask the question also, so wait a minute, what does this have to do with the Old West? Exactly. I mean, somehow the Yul Brenner thing got lost in I can translation. understand the Wild West, but you know. <laughs> That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. Two uh, apps which are not in the top 25, by the way. According to Comscore. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Village, and Net News Check. You can follow the fabulous Tom Asacker on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. And if there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the Uber producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt, exciting audio for media. You can find him at Jeff-Schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Happy birthday. Yeah, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs>